Psychotronic, denoting or relating to a genre of movies, typically with a science fiction, horror, or fantasy theme, that were made on a low budget or poorly received by critics. Greetings and salutations, and welcome to Psychotronica, a podcast for forgotten film. I'm one of your co-hosts, Drew White, and I am here to invite you aboard our Starliner. Joining me on this voyage will be Emily Winter and Donnie McHenry, and I'm sure that nothing at all will go wrong here at this extremely sterile apartment building on Nuns Island. Today we're talking about Shivers, and one of the first trailers for Shivers stated, if this picture doesn't make you scream and squirm, you better see a psychiatrist quick. Did this picture make you scream and squirm, Emily? Hey, this is Emily. I would say sign me up for betterhelp.com. Not a sponsor, but <laughs> I was a little uncomfortable. I would not say that I was screaming and squirming. For me, the real test is do I have to watch some of it um, through my fingers? This time I did not. <laughs> Maybe I'm just hardcore though. No, that's fair. I, th- I think the movie's entire intent is to make you scream and squirm. It would definitely squirm. Donnie, what about you? Any squirming going on down there in Texas? Man, you know, hey guys, it's Donnie. So I struggle with this thought, right? On one hand, I've got to remember this movie came out 47 years ago, you know, 1975. And in 1975, seeing this movie, I wouldn't have an entire lifetime of watching horror movies that have come out since then that are decidedly more squirm and scream inducing uh, than Shivers is. But at the time, I could see it doing that, right? Mm -hmm. There wasn't a whole lot necessarily like it certainly not like what we have now coming out before it uh but at the same time that's a tagline you look at every one of these taglines of all these movies and it's like you know the most terrifying movie ever created you know so they were trying to sell tickets i i don't think i think it's an apt tagline to have in the trailer right i mean it's certainly got some squirminess and some squeamishness Mm -hmm. and some screaminess to it that stomach scene and we'll get into that later but yeah i think it would have you know almost 50 years ago now not so much for sure and the guy that directed it kind of really made his bones making people squirm right and this was sort of the first try out of that and we'll talk about that more obviously but i think it does it tries to make you squirm as much as possible especially with the creatures that we'll talk about and even some of the subject matter the themes that they get into it's definitely meant to make you squirm and that's one of the reasons why we chose this movie but a couple of other reasons that we want to get into and then we'll also talk about the poster and the other taglines for the movie because there are several for some yeah, reason <laughs> they, they really were trying to sell it here and they did but with crimes of the future hitting theaters well pretty recently uh like most the things yeah <laughs> theaters like with most <laughs> things in life i uh, i was trying to be relevant and kind of came on late like when I was wearing puka shell necklaces in middle school. I think I was about a decade late on that one. But, but Crimes of the Future hit the theaters here recently, and we wanted to approach one of David Cronenberg's movies that we felt have been forgotten over time, right? I mean, our whole thing is a podcast for forgotten film, and this is one that has kind of been forgotten, and, and with good reason. I mean, the guy went on to do movies like the fly donnie which i know is one of your favorites the oh, yeah. dead zone emily i know you're a big stephen king fan so i have actually never seen that uh, 
Oh my god. We're all big Stephen King fans. Let's be We're clear. all big Stephen King fans. That but is, I have seen The Fly, and I would back it up a little. The The Fly did absolutely make me scream and squirm. Yeah. See, exactly. It, through my hands. My this was down. sort of his testing ground for that. Yeah. But so this is where it all began. And it all began in Canada, in Montreal, with a tax shelter. But for, before we get into all that, which I will get into, rest assured, we want to talk a little bit about the poster. And do you feel like this poster prepared you for the movie that you were about to see? 100%. So for, for those of you that haven't seen it, look it up, right? You know, we've, we've got a great tagline. If you think you're not afraid of the dark, if you feel nothing can shock you, if you say you don't scare easily, if you believe you've seen everything, then see shivers. Being terrified is just the beginning. And then it's got this, this great image of this woman leaning over her tub with her head, you know, upside down, screaming, her hair hanging down and blood coming out of the tub. And that's arguably, you know, one of the more iconic scenes in that film is that right there. And that's preparing you. This is what we're about to get into. Now, has that scene been mirrored in, in, in movies since? Yeah. You know, <laughs> James Gunn did it in, in, the, in the aughts with, with the Slither. You know, mm-hmm. I, I believe it may have been done in Slugs. I can't remember. I haven't seen Slugs in a while, but I, I'd argue, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that maybe Shivers did it first. But I, I, I do think the poster is really cool. I, I like the art on it. I, I like the style of it. I like that tagline at the top. So I was certainly prepared uh, for what was in store, maybe overprepared and was left somewhat underwhelmed by what I saw after. But again, as we've, uh, you know, like we talked about in, in our intro episode, when I talked about uh, Paganini horror, a lot of times, especially in psychotronic films, those posters are, are sometimes the best looking mm-hmm. effects and, and, and the most fully realized image of what they were really truly going for at the time right they didn't have cgi then right you get a good artist draw a really gnarly poster that's awesome whether you can make it work who knows a lot of times you don't even have a script yet with some of these movies when you get a poster yeah that's a really interesting point that you made there i mean i was listening to charles band speak the other day who's a psychotronic mastermind and that was something that they did is they always he would have comic book artists on staff and they would create a poster and then they would basically go around selling that poster and trying to get investors that way. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, this poster is obviously what they're trying to sell this low budget horror movie. Emily, what did you think about the poster? Did it prepare you and yeah. maybe uh, overstate what it was setting out to do? I do think it's a little bit of a misdirect. I did accidentally not look at it till after I watched the movie. I think it's a great poster. Like I love, I love mm-hmm. the image, the colors. I do dig that particular tagline that, that Donnie just read off better than anybody's ever read a tagline in their life. <laughs> um, but I think, I mean, you think you're looking at a dead body, right? Especially it's got the parasite murders down there as one of the alternate titles. There's not, there's not really much of a body count in this movie. So if you're thinking you're going in, the slugs are going to be taking people out left and right. Like Donnie said, you might be a little underwhelmed based on what they're they're selling us with this poster. But it's that's great. A, you also think there's going to be people at the murders with spotlights on them, right? <laughs> Looking at the poster, somebody's got a big spotlight aimed at her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's a good point, though, Emily. I didn't even really think about that, that this movie doesn't really have a body count mm-hmm. at all. I mean, this movie, this poster does set you up to sort of think, oh, there's going to be a lot of 
blood and guts and there's going to be, you know, a body count that really not. And, and then y'all talking about the taglines being terrified is just the beginning. That's a very melodramatic one. And then being bored is the end. That's a decent one though. (laughs) Yeah, it is. This one though, and I have to read this one off. It's a little bit long, but I mean, I don't know where they got this from. And they spell it out T-E-R-R-O-R beyond the power of priest or science to exercise. I didn't see a priest. Uh, I did not see anything that made you think this tagline would be applied to this movie, but the the science part I get, like, I think if they had just tweaked it, maybe something like beyond the power of science to stop gives you a better idea of what, because you got Dr. Linsky, you got Dr. Hub started it, Dr. Linsky trying to end it. But yeah, the priest thing, I don't know where they just, maybe we'll get a few exorcist fans in here too. They got it (laughs) from, I'd imagine they got it from, well, what's been selling lately, right? This came after Rosemary's Baby. This came after The Exorcist. Both of those, you know, critically lauded, you know, they made gangbusters. And well, actually, I don't know how much money Rosemary's Baby made, but I mean, everybody knows it. It, It's, it's a critic's darling right with the ex. So maybe like, Hey, throw in the tagline, right? People are getting into this, you know, remind them of what scared them before and get it into it. I think there was some creative selling here and good for them. And talking about selling, the movie starts with basically you trying to be sold on Starliner Towers. Yeah, right. So they do all these stock images. They show you the different parts of the building. You've got David Cronenberg's friend that was in his first two basically student films uh, showing you around the place. And so really interesting about Starliner Towers. So you can actually find it on Nuns Island in Montreal on 200 Rue de Gasp. I believe that's how you say that. And they were designed by the Chicago architect Mies Van Ruro. I tried. But so, right. <laughs> so while they were filming, they placed posters and flyers inside the elevators, basically asking the tenants to use the apartment. So the apartments that you see within the movie, those are actual people's apartments. And they basically had to filter through and say, okay, does this fit this character? That sort of thing, which... I think it's most impressive when we get to bet because mm-hmm. that really fits her. But so I wanted to ask you guys, are y'all sold on Starliner Towers? Would you live there? Man, again, it's one of those things, right? Like this is, I wasn't even born then, you know, I look at the style, I look, and it, it, you know, we talked about it before we recorded, like it was a deliberate intention here in the movie to kind of make it seem like this clean, sterile environment, but no, man. You know, I, I didn't see any Evil Dead posters on the wall. I didn't see any signed horror memorabilia on the walls anywhere. So if they said you move in, it's fully furnished. I go in there. I say, nah, this ain't for me. <laughs> Emily, it was good enough for Cronenberg to live there during filming. Would it have been good enough for you? I would maybe be into it. You know, like one of the worst things in life is having to go to the grocery store. So it wouldn't be that bad if it was just two floors down. It's a good point. They're a library. Like, there's a few questions I have to ask, but I might be into it. It's a good point. It, I wouldn't necessarily be against it. I kind of like that everything's right there in one location. Yeah. Like, even when people end up having to go to the doctor, who we will talk yeah. about, Dr. St. Luke himself, it was right there in the building. So I think there were 12 miles from downtown Montreal. So you didn't have to go into the city for all of these different things. But like I said, Cronenberg did actually live in there himself during the filming. He lived there in sort of the effects and props room, which I thought was really interesting. But now that we are in Starliner Towers, 
you know, let's check in with that very uninterested guard. He's reading a paperback. I think it might be a romance and enter the elevator or movie background. So the release date for this movie initially was 1975 released in Canada and it got a release in the States in 1976 with the title they came from within. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Actually, let's go ahead. So shivers, they came from within Emily, which, which title do you think best represents this movie? Definitely. They came from within. Okay. Yeah. Why's that? Cause they came from within. They did. It's very literal. <laughs> yeah. It's very literal. I mean, shivers, what is what is shivers the shivers are yeah. the slip, i guess but yeah, yeah i think i think they came from within cronenberg himself wasn't even really happy with any of the titles i yeah, think he, he just kind of settled <laughs> yeah he, he just sort of settled on shivers and was like i guess this is fine because i think originally it was orgy of the blood parasites which uh tough to get funding it's fitting that, movie that's called accurate that. yeah i think that's not one i would pick up that's even more on the nose than they came from within yeah but with a budget of and this is at the time of the filming so 1975 ish it had a budget of 179,000 canadian with a box office of one million dollars so adjusting for inflation and i'm not good at math i had to use a nice little tool i found using google but so adjusting for inflation is a budget of just under a million dollars today with the return being about 5.6 million dollars so this was the first yeah yeah i know and this is the thing in the time of the marvel you know the this this time i hate where we're at right now you know with (laughs) sorry to cut you off man but yeah these movies that get made now you know to get into the theaters you've got to have this 200 million dollar blockbuster budget it has to be tied to other ip it's got to be all these things and um but i just man a million dollars and it only made five million like that's crazy to me but you think of what's made now and they'd be like i'm never going to consider that me as a, a film you know a hollywood zeitgeist here major machine it's just like nope thank you and anyway i'll let you go back because this was a big deal the money it made then sorry yeah, no, that's fine. I, I was wondering who was going to give us our first one-star review. So that's, uh, <laughs> you, you answered that question for us. And we, we appreciate it. it. Emily thought it would be her. So we've got that, that question <laughs> answered now, Donnie. Very gallant of you to, to bite the bullet and get that first bad review for us. That's great. So but, yeah, but it was the most profitable Canadian film up to this point. And look, it, it was the first to make a return on investment with Canadian funding. So, you know, it did pretty well uh, uh, as far as the box office goes. Now, as far as ratings go, whatever you want to put into that. So it's got 3.2 on Letterboxd, which I thought was pretty impressive. That's a fairly high score for a low budget exploitation. Yeah, out of five. So 3.2 on Letterboxd out of five, which is a Pretty good. high score for an exploitation film and then 6.4 <laughs> yeah exactly I, I think all of us uh spoil alert but 6.4 out of 10 on imdb and then if you're into this sort of thing good for you rotten tomatoes that's an 85 percent which was kind of shocking is to that me with critic a, or audience that's critic yeah with you gotta 50, remember though yeah with for those of you guys that aren't in a you know that don't know how rotten tomatoes works that means 
85% of people gave it what a C plus or better. Uh, I think so. That's why I said, if you're, if you're into that sort of, if you're the kind of person that goes on Twitter and the way that you tout the movie that you like is the Rotten Tomato score in the box office, it, that's fine. But 59% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes as well. And then a 58 on Metacritic. So pretty much everybody was like, it's fine. <laughs> you know, that's pretty much sure. the consensus. And then sort of, We've mentioned mentioned him a couple of times, and the reason why we chose this chose this movie is the director, really, David Cronenberg. And Donnie, I know you looked up David Cronenberg a little bit. Some of your favorite movies, from what I understand, are directed by Cronenberg. So, what did you find out about him? So, I did a little bit of research on him, right, which was cool because I mean, I'd always known who he was as soon as I got in a horror from The Fly. I believe is the first movie I saw from him. So, I started strong with Cronenberg. So. Anyway, uh, I'm sure everybody listening already knows, right? We talked about it. Cronenberg's Canadian, but just in case you didn't know, he is Canadian, right? <laughs> He's uh, it's about to be 80. He was born in Toronto in 1943. Um, his mom was a musician. His dad was a writer. So, you know, he, he's got art in the blood. Now, much like your Psychotronic podcast host here, he was a voracious reader since he was a child. And uh, he actually cites Philip K. Dick as one of his primary influences. He started writing as a kid and he never really stopped. Um, what happened was when he was in college, he was uh, introduced to one of his classmates' student films at the University of Toronto. And that's when he started to get interested in film. He got more and more interested. He actually founded the Toronto Film Co-op with uh, Leon Ewing and, are you ready for it? Ivan Reitman. Mm -hmm. Yep. He went and traveled for a year, came back, graduated top of his class in 1967. And uh, before I bore myself and you guys to death with the guy's whole personal life, let, let's get into the, the good stuff, right? His movies. So he and Reitman, they partnered up, they got busy. Uh, they started working with Shivers and he moved right along after that to Rabid, which uh, actually gave uh, porn star Marilyn Chambers her first film role. Well, I mean, her first non-porno film role anyway. <laughs> Important distinction. Yeah, exactly. Right. I was like, first feature. I'm like, well, they yeah. probably back then in the 70s, they were in theaters. He does tend to appear in small roles in a lot of his own movies. Uh, and he's actually acted uh, in a lot of movies. Well, not a lot, but some most notable one is he played the main antagonist, Dr. Philip K. Decker and Clive Barker's Nightbreed in 1990. Have you guys seen Nightbreed? No. That is one where I'm embarrassed to say I've not seen it. Ah, oh, man, it's it's not great, but it's, it's, it's absolutely Clive Barker. And um, it, it, it's almost like a horror fantasy. It's definitely worth checking out. Um, and a funny coincidence, and I don't know whether this was intentional or not, right? But he plays Philip K. Decker. And we know one of his big influences, Philip K. Dick. Now, yeah. uh, Nightbreed's based on Clive Barker's book, uh, Cabal. So I don't know if the character has the same name in Cabal, if Clive was nodding towards Philip K. Dick, if he change the name of the movie, you know, because Cronenberg loves him. I have no idea. It's a coincidence. It's not. It's cool. Food for thought. Now, he writes most of his own movies, uh, and he generally works outside the world. Oh, boom. There we go. Growing up some you guys can't see, but Drew's got some Barker there with him on his case. He just held up for us. So I was trying, uh, to, I was trying to look through here really quick and see, <laughs> see if the name is Decker. I, I want to say it was, but I, I couldn't. Yeah, Decker. It's got to be. I, I mean, I I think that's too big of a coincidence. I don't know. Maybe some of our listeners can get with us on the socials and tell us if they did any. I mean, I, yeah, I could have researched this it, research but I didn't. For us and let us know. Yeah, I was doing enough other research. I said, all right, I'm getting I'm getting on too many side tangents there. <laughs> but um, Cronenberg generally works outside of the world of big budget. 
Hollywood, right? There's a couple notable exceptions and they're some of his best films, you know, being, you know, The Dead Zone uh, based off of, you know, Stephen King's novel and uh, The Fly. And, you know, both of them just so happen to be in my top three, Dead Ringers being my number one. So we all know Cronenberg is basically, you know, the quote unquote godfather of the body horror subgenre, uh, even though he doesn't love the term. Uh, some of the most notable examples outside of, you know, Shivers being, you know, Scanners, The Fly, Extastens, Videodrome, Naked Lunch, and, and most recently, uh, Crimes of the Future. Have either of you guys seen Crimes of the Future? Not yet, unfortunately. Not yet, but I want to. It's, it's great. I saw it. I saw it right when it released. It, it's 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 a strong movie. It's definitely Cronenberg. And one of the things I didn't see taunted enough on it, which I guess it didn't get a ton of marketing, but one of his earlier student films was titled Crimes of the Future. Yep. And it's, you know, so he basically now he's got, you know, the experience and, and a budget to make, you know, what his vision was. But he, he's done more than that. And they're strong, too. You know, big, notable movies outside of the body horror, you know, in the uh, mid 2000s, he did Eastern Promises and a History of Violence, you know, mm-hmm. and he's got to be easy to work with, right? Eastern Promises, a History of Violence and Crimes of the Future, all-star my main man, heir to Isildur, Aragorn himself, <laughs> Viggo Mortensen. A history of and, Violence uh, great too. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really awesome. Great. And it's got, it's got some decent, you know, gore in there, you know, oh, yeah. that, that scene with the uh, coffee pot, excellent. You know, I mean, it's visceral and he tends to work with crew members again and again over multiple films uh, throughout his career. So, you know, I imagine that means a couple things. He's easy to work with. He's loyal. Uh, So that's enough on Cronenberg for me right now. We'll talk about him more as we go through again. My top three films for Cronenberg top spot, dead ringers, you know, Jeremy Irons. I just that that role is incredible. Fly just inches behind it. And of course, we got. We got the dead zone at number three. Um, what about you guys? Uh, Emily, what are your top three Cronenbergs? Well, this is easy. My top three are The Fly, A History of Violence and Shivers, because I'm going to be honest, those are the only three I've ever seen. <laughs> I was going to say Shivers is in the top three. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> it's third. Well, I, it's I'm third looking place, forward but... to that list changing as you expand uh, by going to the College of Cronenberg Knowledge and, yeah. and seeing more of his films. What about you, Drew? Uh, it would have to be the dead zone, the fly, and then scanners. Uh, really, for that one yeah, scene, I, I'm not going to oh, yeah. spoil it for you. But I, I love that you asked us about two movies, and both of us were like, "Haven't seen it." Yeah. We're a movie <laughs> podcast, haven't seen it. Get <laughs> so, used to hearing that from me. I'm sorry. That I that didn't bodes see well. Dead Ringers until recently, and and I cannot recommend it enough. It's it's not doesn't have the same amount of body horror that you know he's known for, but again. You know, Jeremy Irons should have gotten an Oscar nomination for that movie. That that role he plays, you know, real quick without going on too much of a side tangent. He plays identical twin gynecologists and there was some pioneering work with, you know, making him appear on screen, you know, as two different people using mirrors and stuff at the time that were used by other filmmakers after that. But right at the beginning, you're like, wait a minute, which one is he? And almost immediately he plays the character so differently. It doesn't matter what they're wearing. Sometimes they're pretending to be the other one. You can tell every time which one it is just because of the way he plays the role. It's that's why it's my number one spot. I just, I love, love, love the fly, but that role in dead ringers is just so incredible to me. I can't say enough about it. So I'll shut up about it. And if everyone wants to yell at Donnie about his ranking, that is Donnie underscore does underscore (laughs) horror on Instagram. Uh, Just go out there, make sure he knows what you think of his list. I'm sure he would love that. (laughs) But so, yeah, Cronenberg, 
interesting guy, really cerebral kind of guy. And he gets his reputation for being a big horror person. And when people come up to him, they're kind of like, oh, you're the horror guy. Yeah, but right. really. Donnie just... gets that a lot too. <laughs> yeah, Donnie the horror guy, let's say what. Yeah. But <laughs> no, Martin Scorsese a... was scared to meet him. Yeah, and that, that's fascinating because I, I think Taxi Driver is more harrowing than anything uh, Cronenberg ever did. Right. But so again, Cronenberg's a very cerebral guy. Like if you listen to some of his interviews, he, he has a really great memory too and talks a lot of, about sort of the intricacies of making a film. And he especially, it, I, I thought it was interesting. And if somebody like David Cronenberg, who went on to have such a an illustrious career, made so many what people would say great movies. I mean, on this one, he says within the first couple of days when he's getting the dailies back, just based on what he was seeing from those, that he felt suicidal. Like it really upset him because he was like, I I don't know what I'm doing. And it's not turning out okay. It looks terrible. These people have entrusted this money to me, all of this time and effort. And it looks terrible. Now he said after three days, he pretty much had the hang of it. So that, on that's, a much smaller scale. We've all had that moment in yeah. our lives, right? Like yeah. work. You should have seen the dailies in my first movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's super relatable because I mean, yeah, he, and look, they, most people, and we'll talk about this some more later as well, but they didn't want him to direct this movie. I mean, he wrote it and Cinepix originally did not want him to direct it. Even when he took it to, Roger Corman he didn't want him to direct it and I think it is kind of a fun little look at hey believe in yourself people didn't believe in Cronenberg and he ended up making this movie and then going on to make great great films over time and these people didn't want him to make it and the people that didn't want him to direct it were Cinepix and it was also distributed by the Canadian where is Cinepix now so Cinepix now Look, I, I really just looked into Cinepix in the 70s because that's where they were sort of in their payday. They are anymore. Yeah. No, no, like nobody's talking about Cinepix and everybody's Fuck talking about Cronenberg's yeah. crimes of the future, you know. Exactly. So Cinepix back then, though, what they were trying to do is with the help of Telefilm, who is now the Canadian Film Development Corporation, they were wanting to get into exploitation. They mostly had been doing softcore porn and it they've been really successful yeah (laughs) yeah i'm pretty sure that's most of the score that's actually a better score than it's in shivers um but (laughs) there really is no score in shivers they didn't have a sound department it was ivan raven getting needle drops like he got a hold of what he could get a hold of our music section is basically me going huh well music <laughs> Sorry, I just took it. One thing I like about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you pretty much did the music section. But so this was part of, and I've talked about this on our social media, and I've already talked to you guys ad nauseum about it. But this is part of the Canadian tax shelter movie movement of the 70s. And I, I took a lot of this from the Canadian Encyclopedia. And I'm just fascinated by this because Canada didn't really have a film industry until this happened. And between 1975 and 1982, the Canadian government allowed investors in Canadian film to deduct 100% of their investment from their taxable income. And this led to a growth of, they only had three feature films produced in Canada in 74, 
to 77 movies in 1979. And these movies had to always be 75 minutes long, have at least one producer and two thirds of the creative team be Canadian. And 75% of the pre and post production had to take place in Canada. And look, this is basically done in order to make the Canadian film industry a proper industry instead of a producer of art. And I wish that I had the quote in front of me. There was a filmmaker, I believe he directed Death Game. And he basically said, I don't know who art is, but it sounds like he's starving. And <laughs> that, that's sort of the, the feeling that they were going with was, hey, look, let's make some money. That Roger Corman guy down there in America, he's raking in movies and breaking in money, making these movies for a low budget. So let's do something similar. And that's how they wanted to access the American market, make these exploitation movies. And so basically Cinepigs got wind of Cronenberg's script for Shivers and they loved it. But like I said, they weren't really crazy about him directing it. All he'd done up to this point, and you mentioned Crimes of the Future, Donnie, that was one of his, I keep calling him student films, but sort of his experimental films he started out with and so Cronenberg shopped it around and even again I mentioned Roger Corman sort of the king of exploitation said they would love to do it they weren't interested in him directing and look luckily for Cinepix they finally found the funding with the help of Telefilm and agreed to let Cronenberg direct after three years of shuffling their feet that's how close we were to not having Cronenberg and I think that's really interesting. And so he did, he kind of ushered in, Cronenberg did, this phase of filmmaking in Canada, which led to, you know, movies that we love, like Terror Train, Black Christmas. I mean, I know you mentioned some of the Ilsa films, Donnie. So a lot of exploitation movies that we've come to sort of know and love. And you mentioned Ivan Reitman. He was involved in this movie. And Emily, what, what fun fact did you have about Reitman? This is really more a fun fact about me, but I did <laughs> think that Ivan Reitman was Harold Ramis. I used to too. Up, up until Knocked Up came out and I said, oh, Ivan Reitman's in this movie. And then the credits rolled and I said, Harold Ramis. And I said, who the heck is Harold Ramis? Then I realized there's two, there are two uh, different Egon people. Spengler. Well, no, I know who that is, but I also <laughs> thought he was Ivan Reitman producing and being in the film. That's so time. weird. Cause I literally did too. <laughs> okay, good. So. Weird. Same same page here at Psychotronica. Yeah. I mean, this That's is, why we're friends. So that, exactly. actually, that will give you a peek into the movie knowledge that I'll be bringing to the podcast. <laughs> it's very relatable, obviously. I mean, Donnie was right there yeah. with you. Yeah. Anybody else out there thought it too? Please let us know. And, and yeah, Reitman was pretty prolific. And, and Cronenberg even mentions like Cronenberg was never really interested in going Hollywood. But his buddy Reitman was, and he did, mm. right? So yes, he, he was did. a he was a producer for many years, and he was on a lot of huge blockbusters like Ghostbusters and Space Jam. But before all that, he was really involved in those Canadian tax shelter films, like this movie, Blackout, also The Tigers of Siberia, which at some point <laughs> we, we should just do an episode on all the Elsa movies. The like, like five, I don't know. There's a ton of them, and he also directed cannibal girls which features eugene levy so that that's uh yeah that that's an interesting one look that up at home folks but the other producers were and i'm really excited to talk about this guy john dunning who was more the story focused producer and then andre link who he was more on the distribution and sales side of things 
this is a quote from Cronenberg. John Dunning was the only producer who really understood me. So John Dunning was sort of who helped Cronenberg get his start. And Dunning and Cronenberg were so close during the time of the filming of this that actually Cronenberg did a chunk of the late writing on the film at Dunning's boathouse where he had no phone available. And the thing that Dunning really loved was breaking stories of writers and by all accounts, he was very accommodating of all these new filmmakers, giving them a ton of responsibility and just letting them make their film. And Cronenberg went so far as to call him his, his film dad, right? So, which I thought was really high praise. And he, Cronenberg was really complimentary of Dunning and Andre Link for <laughs> taking a movie that was originally called Orgy of the Blood Parasites and taking it seriously and, and really trying to make it as good as they possibly could. Uh, but yeah, they were instrumental in sort of getting him started. And so that's sort of some background on that. And then we had to bring this up. So one aspect of psychotronic film that we've talked about before is it's poorly received by critics usually, right? So this one is no exception to that rule. Uh, it was, look, there were some critics that enjoyed it. I know Emily, what did Roger Ebert have to say about it? He gave it a short, but actually pretty complimentary review. Well, two and a half stars, but mm. the text of, of what he said, he appreciates how the scenes are pretty low key and fairly realistic. He also, I think the biggest thing he liked was that other critics really said it was exploitative and like a snuff film. And he said it was really... Um, Actually, I'm just going to read it because he is smarter than that, than I. He said it, it scares and shocks us because it's so cleverly made. He this will this is something I want to tie into budget. But he says Cronenberg uses invention and imagination to replace replace expensive shock effects, which I always really appreciate. And he said he does it so well that they came from within becomes not only a replacement for snuff but a rebuke. And when we kind of get mm. to scenes, something that I really one that I had noted wanted to just talk about is I think really effective. And he brings up right at the beginning of the review is the juxtaposition of the kind of isolated. You've got the building manager touring around the two people, this great, amazing self-contained community. And then quietly and mostly off screen in another apartment, there's this old man carving up a young girl. Which I, is really effective. Yeah. It, it kind of shows, you know, the facade of the Starliner Tower and all it stands for. And then... The underbelly what's actually it. going on behind that yeah. door yeah and then he appreciated talk? that most of that carving quote-unquote was off screen so it really was right. about just the use of the your imagination and not just watch watch this knife go through yeah. this gut which right. has its place talk, has its time and place. we talked about no score either and that that scene particularly you know is all the more effective because there is no you know horror movie score behind it it's just scuffling old man heavy breathing and struggling and it goes on i mm -hmm. mean it's yeah that's an effective scene it's an off-putting scene and then the really the bulk of the score for that is is just kind of that drum yeah. heartbeat in the background mm -hmm. which i think is really good yeah, yeah good super super effective and that's near the beginning of the film too so i mean it, right. it really sets the tone it gets you uncomfortable from the jump and lets you know hey this is what you're in store for and it really doesn't lit up from there now we'll, we'll talk about some of the things that don't quite work in the movie but that does work for me and think, it so really I think we and ebert appreciated it yeah 
Not somebody did maybe somebody who didn't appreciate it was Robert uh, Fulford, who was writing under the name Marshall Delaney, and his review was pretty scathing. And so it was in a, a 1975 edition of Saturday Night Magazine, and the review was titled "You Should Know How Bad This Film Is." After all, you paid for it. And he called the film an atrocity, a disgrace to everyone connected with it, including the taxpayers. If using public money to produce films like this is the only way that English Canada can have a film industry, then perhaps English Canada should not have a film industry. And so where I get a little bit annoyed with that is this guy writes this review. And then years later, he comes out saying that he basically helped Cronenberg uh, procure this uh, reputation right and w- which Cronenberg kind of rolls his eyes at but he wrote this scathing review so. yeah it, it, he writes a scathing review and then years later basically tries to turn it into him helping Cronenberg out when in reality it actually set him back quite a bit absolutely and because it made telefilm afraid to invest in further movies because of this article right and so what he had to do with Rabbit, which if you haven't seen that, give that a look too. It's a fun sort of look at early Cronenberg again and has a lot of similarities to Shivers actually, but he had to bury it within a three-picture deal to get it made. And again, Cronenberg kind of laughs at the, how the guy sort of takes credit for his reputation now. But it, I don't know, that sort, of, <laughs> that sort of rubbed me the wrong way that he writes, first of all, writes under a pen name. And then second of all, took credit for giving Cronenberg this reputation years later. This is one of the things that gets frustrating with these, these critics, right? You know, there's another guy, a BBC film critic, Barry Norman, and he's again and again since then, you know, has continually cited Shivers as one of the worst films he's ever seen. And, you know, and I, I've got something to tell Barry that the same thing I'll tell everybody else. You haven't seen too many fucking horror movies, you know, this... <laughs> It, you're not a horror movie to write a review like that you're clearly not a fan of the genre and that's fine you know it, it's not for everybody right you know i don't write reviews i don't make a fucking instagram page dedicated to romances right because it's not my wheelhouse yeah, me neither and you know not to you know, <laughs> jump up on my soapbox with that shit but it's like come on dude like this movie was the most profitable film to come out of canada at the time yeah. and they didn't want to fund it because he wrote the scathing you know review right yeah. maybe they shouldn't be making films like fucking eat a dick dude look there's a market for it clearly yeah. people are paying even looking at it from today it's not a failure no 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 it's absolutely not a failure i mean it made money it got cronenberg the right to make more movies and i mean look a lot of none of us here are critics <laughs> but it, it does seem like a lot of critics they see oh it's a horror film and they kind of know what they're going to write already and right. that that's look I, i'm being a little too unkind with that there are plenty of critics out there who really do go out of their way to make sure that horror movies are well represented but there are those as well that get a nice little clicky headline and they, they see that as a success but it's like cool to hate on it yeah and look that's again that's a soapbox item for me uh, and we're already gonna go longer than the film shivers runs for so <laughs> so in the, for the sake of brevity yeah for the sake of brevity i will talk about how cronenberg himself 
actually called the tax uh, shelter scheme a failure. And that was years ago that he said that, but he does credit it with helping him get his start in early movies like Shivers, Rabid, Fast Company, The Brood, and Scanners. And uh, first of all, what a run. That's an incredible run of low-budget movies, if you see all of those. And, you know, one critic said that the tax shelter scheme was like trying to compete with Ford Motors by building a car in a basement, which is kind of funny. But look, I definitely wouldn't say that it was a failure. The Cronenberg movies alone make it a success, I think. But you also get movies like Black Christmas, My Bloody Valentine, Rituals, which I know you guys like, right? Rituals. I have not seen... I thought Sorry, you saw, no, I that was that was just before dawn that you liked Emily. Yeah, I did I, really I, like just before dawn. We got that um, just before dawn. Black right. Christmas. Just yeah. before dawn's awesome. Uh, Happy birthday to, to me was included in that. Heavy metal prom. Oh, you were calling out your birthday that you just had. I was like, all right, happy birthday to you, Drew. <laughs> yes, hey, everybody. Every, Drew, Drew just celebrated his birthday. <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was a really easy way for me to kind of move that in there just <laughs> hey everyone tell me happy birthday uh at psychotronica on instagram wish me happy birthday that's sort of all that Wait, information you left the changeling. i did leave out the changing yeah, the changeling so the changeling was sort of a weird one it was made in canada it's not really usually cited as being one of the canadian tax shelter movies but it's that angelina jolie movie right <laughs> that's exactly right uh that's actually <laughs> what we're covering next month but no so I, I just i got really interested in the canadian tax shelter deal at, any time where industry and film sort of mix and it's a bunch of people that are like how can we make money and then they find a way to make these exploitation movies it's always really sort of interesting to me but did y'all have anything else to add about sort of the background of the movie where it came from for, no, i think you've covered it all for me just some might say exhaustive. <laughs> yeah right <laughs> quick final thoughts on it for me there you know which you know final thoughts as if we're ending the episode here but for what it is, right? That they funded it to help, you know, kickstart this industry, make money. That there are plenty of exploitation films from that came out during this time and after that that had that same background, and they're poorly shot, poorly acted, poorly written. You know, this is this guy's first movie. He's a writer director. The movie is well shot. It's well lit. It's well acted, and the script holds the up. It's, he'd get better, right? But compared to a lot of these other exploitation movies of which I've seen many, doesn't mean I love this movie, but I like it more than I like a lot of the other ones with the exact same background and the exact same reason for getting funded. So, you know. Yeah, we'll talk about it later. We'll talk about it later too. But I mean, this movie is a really fun time capsule, right? You get to kind of go back and see the bones, see where it all started. And, And that to me makes it really interesting. And something else that's interesting is Roger St. Luke. Man, what a segue. Roger St. Luke. <laughs> so we, we want to uh, talk about a little bit about the cast. And, and you got to start at Mr. Dyed Eyebrows himself, Roger St. Luke. That's where we settled, right? His eyebrows are dyed. Are they dyed? I have thought about this more than anything with this it movie. It must be. I just don't know. I think they are, though. The dude's He's sideburns wearing, are brown. Yeah, like the under hair is really dark. He's not wearing nude lipstick, though. I, I did some zooming in, and that's actually just his lip. But I, I wondered, but the, I think the eyebrows are dyed. They appear to be. Do the curtains match the drapes? Oh, <laughs> there we the go. Carpets. 
carpets match drapes. I ruined the joke. Edit that out of here. Much, much like, uh, much like the movie Shivers, we are going there. Yeah. <laughs> but, but so, what, what do you have on Paul Hampton, aka Roger St. Luke? Well, Paul Hampton. So you would put this in the notes and same. Um, he was in sixteen movies. I've never heard of any of them. Neither, uh, neither of us. No. Uh, but definitely, you know, an interesting guy. So he's also a singer songwriter. He went to Dartmouth. So when he was, you know, around what, 20, 21 years old, he was signed to Columbia Records to sing and to songwrite. So he had songs recorded by Sammy Davis Jr., Bette Midler, Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, a whole bunch more. Even up to our current era in 2008, he wrote the song Hope. Um, for the MLB Stand Up to Cancer wow. campaign, and um, Miss Adele Dazeem recorded that. I listened to it. It's not, it's not a bad song. Um, so, you know, he was still working. He, there was a, a pub, British publication called Foot Soldiers and Kings that listed him as one of the top 100 architects of American rock and roll. Um, wow. He wrote the theme song, theme song for the TV show My Mother is a Car, which I listened to. is pretty decent. So he's a, he's a pretty very guy. Yeah, I've heard of it. And now I've listened to the theme song. It's interesting. So he he had a lot going on. And as far as um, performance wise, his is probably my second, second favorite in the movie. But I will say when I, as soon as I started watching it, I know I texted you mm. guys and said he's like Moriarty light. So I am very, very yeah. into it. He and I, I'm curious to see how you guys feel about his performance. Something that kind of caught my eye. Where did it, the, so the CDFC, one of their initial reasons they didn't want to fund this was because the characters were really unlikable. And I would say with the exception of one that I'm sure we're all on mm. the same page for, I liked all the characters, but I wonder if he was one of them because he's a bit of an oddball. And then the performance is so understated that it absolutely skews odd. And I, I love it. So he's one of the characters in this movie where I can't, I, I can't tell if his performance is on purpose, which... I maybe it says more I about me 100 percent on purpose in, i agree because it works at the end so when he finally is turned at the end spoilers uh surely you've watched the movie but w- when he's finally turned at the end it is a payoff because he feels so repressed so within himself throughout the movie it, like when when lowry who plays nerd Forsyth, <laughs> she thought it was really funny that his character throughout the movie just was not interested in her at all well nurse he's a man of science mm. he doesn't have time uh, listen I, I i'm very committed to my job my work but i don't know if i'm strong enough to uh resist Lynn Allery. so yeah hey all the more power to him for his fortitude yeah what did, yeah, what, did what did you think about him i'll get into it more later my favorite my it's all him my absolute <laughs> The scene that I think back to every time I think of this movie, which I'll get into later, is it's Roger and, it, and it's his acting. I, I Maybe it was direction for him, but I like to think that, no, he did it on his own. And again, not to tempt you, like, oh, leave a cliffhanger there, oh, but I'll yeah, get into I'm, it later. Just, I like his performance. I, I think he's great. Yeah, I, I didn't find him all that unlikable overall compared to some As other people or a character yeah um, yeah I, I, thought, I thought he was fine I, I don't know I, I feel kind of out wow. of uh out of place on this one I, I know you guys are really well you also knew who Ivan Reitman was the whole time so <laughs> I don't <laughs> well, know. nevertheless uh he I don't know he, he wasn't my least favorite I'll put it that way I think we have the same yeah. 
opinion yeah. there. Well, but let's keep going then to his sort of girlfriend, um, Nurse Forsyth, Lynn Lowry. I really don't have a lot of information about her, to be honest. She, um, you know, she was in a, a few horror films. Um, I know, I think she moved out, Drew, I think you have a quote, she moved out to Hollywood and wasn't doing horror films anymore and just got really disillusioned with the general, general Hollywood grist mill, if you will. Quote, I just got tired of the bullshit. Yeah, there you go. But she, I, I'm not totally sure if I enjoyed her performance. Well, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about her. I think I liked it. What do you guys think? I don't, I've gone back and forth on her a lot and I just, I can't decide. I just cannot decide on her. I like her, the, the character, yeah. the characterization I can't decide on. I think she's all right. I, I think any issues I have are, are more issues that I have in general with filmmaking at a time and, and the way a lot of uh, female characters are written mm-hmm. back then. You know, she's, uh, in the, in the words of uh, Mike Vanderbilt, she's a stone cold fox, to be sure. Is, for me, she is the stunner of the movie. Well, I'll argue, but we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, did have, uh, I did have one thing to add about her. And I think this is really uh, important. Roger, I had a very disturbing dream last night. In this dream, I find myself making love to a strange man. And that goes on for a long time. That monologue, look, she does everything she can with it. But she even says in her interview that, that's on the Blue Ray release that she's like, I, I didn't get it. <laughs> You know, but she did. She found somebody at a convention not too long ago where their entire vo- their voicemail was that monologue. Oh, no. Them reading that monologue out. That was her voicemail, and she was like, "Oh, uh, okay." Yeah. <laughs> she didn't really get it, but no, she. Uh, I don't know. I, I thought she was one of the more interesting characters in the movie. In a movie where the characters are secondary. Yeah. You know what I did appreciate about her though. So she's she's kind of quiet. You know she's trying to get Dr. St. Luke to pay attention to her. But when the push came to shove, she never stopped fighting for herself. No, so she didn't. No, yeah, there, I mean, that was the scene in her apartment with the guy with the fork and in the car too. Like there was no wilting wallflower. Where's Dr. St. Luke to save me? No. In, final girl. And she also was one of the only ones that didn't feel repressed to me to start mm-hmm. the movie out like her yeah. and, and bets they both sort of had like a sexual agency where everybody else felt a little vanilla a little repressed a little conservative and, and yet at the same time so slutty because everybody was sleeping with that one girl i, I know yeah it, so so strange yeah it's strange because in a movie where they pretty much established everybody was sleeping around in this uh condominium yeah everybody seemed pretty reserved pretty uptight yeah yeah it was really strange but you know hey somebody had to get the infection started but who's uh who's our next character so our next character is um joe silver as oh yeah and i've got to be honest he kind of dark horsed in you know i was very taken with dr st luke at first he was so weird but mm. I, I love Dr. Alinsky. I think he's a great character. I think he feels the most natural and is the most natural actor, um, which he, at uh, the time of his death, had had over a thousand appearances on TV and shows and on game shows and stuff like that. Um, he's a Tony Award winner for this, 
the role of role in Lenny. He played nine roles. So he got a Tony Award as a supporting actor. And then obviously you mentioned his voice. He is, I think our general (laughs) audience would know him best as the voice of the creep in Creep Show 2. Yes. I did not know that. That's interesting. Cronenberg didn't either. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. In the director's commentary, they bring it up and he's like, really? (laughs) And that's, and the creep himself is played by our patron St. Tom Savini. So that was in there. So two of the coolest guys in the biz. Yeah. But I thought, I thought he was really good. Honestly, my favorite scene in the whole movie is him and St. Luke talking about Dr. Hobbs eating lunch if there's a pickle, I'm happy. Yeah, he loves right. pickles. And I'm, I laughed I'm out loud his pickle joke. He just seems like a real, real, like this really smart 70s scientist. But if Dr. Hobbs had come to him and said, hey, I have this really cool, weird idea, he'd say, Dr. Hobbs, like, it's the weekend. I got to go home, man. What are you doing? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, he, he didn't quite know what old Hobbs is up to. Uh, he did get to. Hobbs is a creep. Yeah, he, he did get to read off Hobbs' sort of manifesto, which, you know, I think silver reading it really gave that some gravitas but yeah i've got to read this quote somebody said that joe silver's voice is so low that when he speaks he unties your shoelaces that's amazing that's a great quote but yeah he uh he was he might sneaky be the best actor in this movie i I think he might have uh like you said dark horse den yeah. He's for sure the best actor in this movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Best character, I should say. Yeah, I he think is... my favorite character, too. But yeah, yeah 100% best actor. Uh, objectively, he is the, the best actor on screen. I do want to but... let the listeners at home know, in the notes, Drew wrote the pickle fascination was weird, though. I do not align it... with that statement. He yeah, does man, I love pickles. I just didn't, like, where did the, <laughs> I don't know. He's it... just a fun guy, and pickles, pickles are good. Well, pickle, I did Pickles see as I was looking up that I was trying to find more information on the Starliner Towers, uh, which are not actually called the Starliner Towers, of course. But there was some guy that like went to go tour it and like took a pickle with him to take a picture in front of the tower with a pickle in his hand. I was like, that, <laughs> That's great, hey, man. I, I admire loving this movie that much. That I definitely do. Do you, I'm going to pass this one to Drew. I think we'll save our least favorite character and the one we have the most questions about for last. I'm going to go ahead and let Drew talk about Miss Barbara Steele. I love Barbara Steele. <laughs> uh, it, it's really as simple as that. And everything in this movie she does is just so damn cool and languid. And she always looks so relaxed and she draws you in. And like, I do whatever she told me to do. Uh, let me be frank i mean whatever she did but she just had such cool vibes out the entire thing like my introduction same as actually and donnie you'll get into this with joe blasco my my introduction to barbara Steele was in black sunday which Mm. i highly highly recommend uh going to check it out i haven't seen it very formative horror movie a lot of stuff that you are very familiar with today in black sunday but no i mean whether it's here or in black sunday or it's in she was in piranha uh jawsploitation movie i'll always take the opportunity to say something about that and she also did some work in the pit and the pendulum directed by roger corman and personally i would put her near the top of sort of my general scream queen rankings i don't have them on me right now 
but she would she would be near the top but she's got this sort of cat-like energy where she just always looks so like I said languid and just so relaxed and I don't know. She has some of the best scenes too in this movie. Like we mentioned the bathtub scene, which uh, I was disappointed to find out it's actually a double for her legs in the, in the bathtub that that's kind of upsetting, but no, to me, I, I just always, I wanted more of her in the movie and she does, she does die like, or well, she gets taken over pretty yeah. quick in the movie. But what did y'all think of uh, Miss Steele? I really don't have much more to add other than what you said. You know, I think she's great and I'm looking forward to seeing her in other roles. I did not know that those were uh, leg doubles, but I agree. You know, she's she's certainly got a, a way about her that, you know, she steals the scenes that she's in. Yeah, I just, I, it's something that's like every, everybody in the cast looks interesting. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. They don't have your sort of Hollywood star or starlet kind of look to them like they all show up really interestingly on screen um i liked her i think her her you know you talked about they use people's furnished apartments the one they picked for her was absolutely perfect for her character and i told you guys earlier like 50 percent of the things are there are things i have in my home so that's definitely my vibe i think she used you know she didn't have like a lot to do but she just used her screen time wisely it's on her bed and then kind of like puts her glass down and does like the little split thing. And it just felt like something she would do as that yes. character. Like that, that is how that character would move. It didn't feel affected. And she absolutely brand. just felt, yeah, she felt like a divorcee who would live in a luxury Starliner apartment thing. And then um, I think it's interesting. She did get taken over really quickly mm-hmm. and something I kind of wanted to know. So these little shivers creatures, you know, they're supposed to make you take you over. Y'all, you just want to do it with everybody. You're so happy, but nobody really seems like they're having a good time in this movie, even after, except for her. And then by extension later, Janine. So, Mm -hmm. and I don't know if that's, she's just less repressed than everybody else. And that's something we'll talk about. Why is Nicholas resisting so much? Um, Two speedo guys seem to be having fun. They did too. Yeah. But she just seemed like she was having, having the best time. Yeah, I did. I her her set and her costume design and just the the way that she used her screen time, I did really like. True, true. Who? So, <laughs> I, I keep putting off our, our our guy Nick. Do we want to talk about him now, or we want to save him for the end? Uh, we can talk. I guess the only other real character I think we should briefly touch on is Janine, whose performance I did not enjoy. I think it skirted too close to hysteria too early. But mm-hmm. honestly, thinking back about it, though, she does clearly know that she was being cheated on when she asked him if she could call him at the office. That was her trying to catch him out. So thinking yeah. about it from that lens, I could see. And then thinking about his character a little bit more, I can see where she would already be kind of a cowed, you know, not, not to be rude to her, but have that cowed, nervous demeanor mm-hmm. even before the weird stuff starts. So it's still, it's not my favorite performance, but just thinking about it more I, I do appreciate it a little bit more but I don't I don't love it behind the scenes it, Susan Petrie it, kind of interesting it, she was more of a comedy actor up to this point she did a lot of very lighthearted stuff but she wanted to get into something a little bit more dramatic and it, it's interesting because she couldn't get into the emotional state she needed to access without Cronenberg slapping her and it obviously really bothered Cronenberg he didn't want to slap the woman but 
she kept asking him to, and she kept asking him to do it harder. And he said, by some point, it kind of got to where it was just run of the mill. It was what they did every day. And Barbara Steele, who look, Barbara Steele's like six foot, six foot one. She she could take you down. And she was on set one day, did not know what Cronenberg was doing. And he slapped Susan. And so Barbara still came up to him, like grabbed him by the lapels and was holding him up and shaking him. So like, what the hell are you doing? And so he had to explain he's it so, to her. He seems cool and that seems like something her character would do too. Exactly. Yeah. So she was, she's real method. Yeah. Real method. Am I having a false memory? Didn't they try using onions for Susan? And then when they ran out of onions, it was like. Yeah. It, it seems like. Yeah, it seems like they maybe I'm making that do, up. Then I don't know. No, I think they were involved, from what I remember in some of the interviews. I, I think Cronenberg mentioned that she would use onions and all of these other agents in order to cry and get emotional, which she does a lot throughout this movie. And it, eventually, it was just him having to slap her, <laughs> much to the chagrin of Barbara Steele. But yeah, she was not a fan. But then good for her. I, I wanted to give real quick before nick wanted to give a quick shout out to ronald i should have looked up looked up how to pronounce this mwadzik and he was the guy who kind of takes you through starliner at the beginning where i can't really decide if he's creepy or cool he's got the mustache there at the beginning but he looks um, like he's fucking dead and that screenshot you used he looks like a corpse he he does look like a corpse <laughs> yeah I, i'm not sure if he's really selling starliner all that well but Cronenberg basically said like it was a pleasure to finally get to pay him because he worked for free in his first two sort of experimental films but Emily what do you have about well he went by Al, Alan Coleman now I guess but on this film he's credited as Alan Mijakovsky I think that's how you would say it yeah there so I started looking up under that name not a lot was coming up but at some point Alan Coleman came up still not a lot he has been in 19 films including a little movie called seven ever heard of it <laughs> uh, kind of a kind of a big deal in, in a small role though he did some tv as well wonder woman on an episode of seinfeld absolutely when he came on i was like where do i know like who does this guy remind me of and i realized it's probably he reminds me of himself as a bit player in the background of you know however much 90s tv i'm sure i've seen the seinfeld episode but um, I think he was on Air Force One, too. He said later on, that's the movie with Harrison Ford, right? Mm. Yes. Yeah. But later on in his career, somehow he just ended Give up back a lot of Russians. Um, so he was one of the Russians on that and then a bunch huh. of other stuff. I guess he just has that kind of look. He, Drew did find that on LinkedIn. He did go to Yale from 71 to 72. Rory Gilmore. I looking up these people's stuff. LinkedIn's. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tried to connect with him. He hadn't answered yet. I'm, I'm trying yeah. to make some business connections here with uh, Alan Coleman. Yeah. He doesn't seem super involved in anything no. these days. And I would say generally he was our least favorite actor and character, correct? Yeah. And I, I think Emily, you and I talked about it, how we were like, is it on purpose? Yeah. You know, I can't, I can't tell. I think some of it is the characterization. I don't totally understand what they're going for with him. Um, if he's been infected for a while, but he has no interest in boning his wife for quite some time. No. This will come up in the WTF scenes, but I don't understand why he's talking 
to the shivers in his belly. Yeah. Like he's, yeah. kind of, he's resisting them. And I wonder, is it because he definitely was a dick ahead of time too? And he seems, even though he's cheating, that does not mean that you're not a repressed person. So I don't know if he, he's just resisting them because he has a terrible personality. Like I could not, could I couldn't get a handle on what was going on what were we supposed to be reading into his journey I can't figure him out either and a lot of the critiques of the movie when it came out was like how bad the acting was which sounds really mean but I mean I think a lot of it had to do with him where he is pretty wooden and and he's so central to the story and you spend so much time with him and he just there is literally nothing interesting about him yeah and I, I do think that that knocks the movie down a little bit it's because you do spend a lot of time with him yeah i think he's not a successful storyline or a character for me no i feel the same i i think that the the closest to a believable scene that i had of him and it even that threw me off right because we're introduced to him he's sitting here he's having breakfast he's being rude to his wife she lights up a cigarette blows him in his face while he's eating his eggs <laughs> doesn't even care I used to smoke. I'd care. But then he goes to, you know, his rendezvous, right? He's, he has this awkward, stilted interaction in the elevator, right? Where like, everybody's like, we're uncomfortable. Let's get off here. Let me show you these things. This dude's being fucking weird. And then he goes into the apartment and he starts talking. And I I thought that scene, like taken in a capsule separate from what just led up to it, he walks in, you know, that seemed natural to me. He walks in, looks towards the bedroom, doesn't see her there. You know, you got our camera set up. We can see her. And uh, mm-hmm. then he turns around and sees her and he's horrified and like, oh my, you know, and I'm like, dude, like, and then I thought, I was like, I guess he just does not care about his wife at all. This is who he cares about. But then right. the whole rest of the movie jumps back to this cardboard robotic performance. And no, yeah. I don't think it was a deliberate thing. I mean, maybe who am I to say, but it, it didn't yeah. feel like a deliberate <clears throat> thing. Like, well, he's, he's a shiver, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, so it's strange because he doesn't feel like much of a character yet. He does deliver a lot of the more relatable scenes in the movie. It, what I mean by that is sort of the patented body horror that Cronenberg goes with. Like mm-hmm. for instance, you look at the scene of him when he gets home and he, he can barely contain everything that's in his body. You can yeah. tell that he's getting flushed. He's getting to a point where like, if he doesn't get home quick, it's going to be bad. And, and in the hallway. As, yeah. As gross yeah. as it is, like we've all been there and mm-hmm. that's what makes a lot of Cronenberg's movies very relatable is, you know, maybe we haven't seen a ghost. Maybe we haven't, you know, dealt with a slasher, but we've all had moments where our bodies have more or less failed us. and where we can feel them sort of turning against us and betraying us and so like that scene where he gets home and he crashes into that chair and then he realizes oh no i I gotta get to the bathroom yeah and we've all had diarrhea yeah (laughs) that's what i mean it's like we've all experienced those really scary moments where we don't know our bodies yeah we we don't know our own bodies and that's that's really horrifying because we live with them every single day that's not some groundbreaking take i mean people have said it about cronenberg forever but it, it's interesting that you see it on display here so early in his career where he's sort mm-hmm. of interested in that and to kind of pull it back to uh we mentioned how much we love stephen king right and so a movie a, a book of his it's always lambasted as dream catcher 
so Same okay this is the this is the day. point in the by show people, by people who don't get stuff yeah this yeah. is the point in the show where you, you know mark off that bingo card if you thought Dreamcatcher by stephen king was going to be mentioned but he, he kind of says like that's sort of the last frontier of horror you know is right there in the bathroom it's, it's where we mm-hmm. poke and prod in the mirror where we're looking at all of the different things that go wrong you don't want to talk about it yeah Oop. The final yeah. frontier. Poop, the final frontier. Put that on a t-shirt. Shit log, that's... 1722. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's going to be the first uh, official Psychotronica t-shirt right there. <laughs> but, but no, so I mean, while he, as a character, wasn't very interesting, he did give us some of the more, uh, dare I say, Cronenbergian uh, scenes throughout the movie, just with sure. stuff like that. Yeah. But speaking <laughs> of... Well, I was going to say speaking of his scenes um with the body horror i had been thinking about the poster and what i personally would have put on the poster was the shot when she comes in the apartment with the fridge door and just his hand under it yeah that would have been good by the fridge door i thought was just a good creepy creepy shot would have been good speaking of creepy one of the creepier shots of the movie again he's used for these cool scenes just he's not really doing much so like the parasite coming out of his mouth oh my god yeah gross effective it it, you get to see janine just horrified it it really does work and yeah again that creature was designed by joe blasco donnie what do you have about joe blasco kind of an interesting guy huh oh yeah and i've got a i've got a bit a little bit about our man joe blasco so he you know, when you think of special effects, right, you don't necessarily think of Joe Blasco, right? Um, but the, the guy's been in the industry working in makeup and special effects for a very long time. So, you know, we know now why are we talking about him? Well, he created the creature and he was a special makeup artist for Shivers. Um, believe it or not, he began his uh, career in show business on the newlywed game where he worked as a makeup artist from 1969 to 1974. He did work again with Cronenberg on uh, Cronenberg's follow-up film, 1977's Rabid. And um, up until about eight or nine years ago, the guys worked steadily in TV and film. And I'll get into it as I go through some facts. He's got other sources of income, all right? So for our psychotronic listeners here that want to look into some of his other, you know, horror-centric psychotronic work that you could check out for him, I made a little list. So he also worked on a film called Touch of Satan from 1971, which the L.A. Free Press said, right? And the L.A. Free Press said, the touch of Satan makes Rosemary's baby look like a Sunday school picnic. And while I highly doubt this, I do want to check it out. It's about a dude who meets a farm girl who turns out to actually be a witch. What a surprise there. He also worked (laughs) on another movie I want to check out in 1972 called Garden of the Dead in which convicts in a chain gang sniff some experimental formaldehyde to get high. Then they get shot down by the guards trying to escape. And who would have guessed it? They bury him in the garden where they rise from the grave to get high once again. We talked about Ilsa. He worked on Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS in 1975, where our evil Ilsa runs a Nazi death camp with an iron fist, trying to prove through medical experimentation that women can take more pain than men and are therefore fit for the front lines of war. He worked on its 1976 sequel, Ilsa, Harm Keeper of the Oil Sheiks. The war's over, guys, and we've got this she-wolf. What's she to do? She decided to pair up with a dastardly sheik to help in his sex trafficking ring. Of course, that's going to be pretty psychotronic. He worked on Track of the Moon Beast, 
where a mineralogist, this is 1976, mineralogist gets conked on the head by a meteor shard and turns into a killer reptilian monster. And uh, this one seems kind of cool. He worked on this movie in 1977 called Ruby, where an executed mobster possesses poor Ruby's unborn daughter. All right. She immediately goes into labor when he gets killed, only to wait 16 years to overtake her and exact his revenge. It has an excellent tagline. Christened in blood, raised in sin. She's sweet 16. Let the party begin. Oh, where else are you going to get this? Where right? where else can you go to find Nowhere. this type of information? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Beautiful. He, he also worked on the Clonus Horror, 1979. That's where uh, politicians try to clone themselves to gain immortality. Um, Shocking. Might be worth checking out. It's certainly uh, poignant in today's political climate. And Sounds then, like a uh, cool documentary. Right. Last but not least, little movie from 1990 called Whispers, based on a novel from your favorite budget bin Stephen King, Dean Koontz, about a lad who kills her attacker only to have him show up again and again with no recollection of any of it. My question on Whispers is, where is the overly intelligent golden retriever? I would to say it does not sound like it's Watchers. Right? No. no, no. This is Whispers, not to be confused. And you know what? I made a joke, you know, budget bin Stephen King. I've read a few Koontz books. They're all right. You know, they're serviceable. Do I we have mentioned King and Coots in this episode. Yeah. I don't think that'll no. be the last time. <laughs> now, here's something cool. So according to Wikipedia, right? Wikipedia is not always right, and they're definitely wrong here. Joe Blasco is often credited as inventing the use of bladder effects. We see that on uh, Nicholas's stomach and shivers, right? And in mm -hmm. this movie, he actually, the design he was going for, I don't think, it's an effective scene, but I don't think it works the way he was going for. He was going for this idea of, you can see the shiver itself crawling around his stomach. He did it with the use of bladder effects. They filled condoms um, and overlaid them over one another under the, the prosthetic stomach that they made. And the idea was to squeeze and, and, and inflate these things uh, at different times to make it, it really just looks like his stomach is boiling with parasites, which I still think is cool. Um, yeah, I thought that was definitely an effective effect and to circle it back to body horror. I don't know. I don't think you guys have ever been pregnant, but when you start seeing, no. you know, like the foot pressing out, I mean, it's horrifying. So this is just that to another degree. Absolutely. And they, they credit me to make such a, such a bad face. It's creepy. Yeah. Yeah. The wonder and beauty of life. But. Yeah. Ugh. Sorry, Donnie. No, no, you're good. You're good. I like it. So it's a great effect, right? And it's been used again and again in countless horror movies from the 70s and 80s and beyond, right? But Wikipedia is wrong. How do I know it? Because I've seen The Exorcist and makeup legend Dick Smith use this effect. He is the godfather of this effect. He did it back in 1973, right? You ever see The Exorcist? You think Reagan did that naturally with her neck? I don't think so. I called so up Joe Blasco, actually, and, and he said for you to go to hell. Yeah, I bet he would too. <laughs> I mean, the dude's found success, right? In addition to the makeup work he's done on TV and films, he's actually opened up two makeup training schools. He has his own line of cosmetic products. They're sold around the world. You can go on his website. You see Kim Kardashian up there. A cool little fun fact, the guy's turned down some pretty cool roles, right? He turned down both Easy Rider and Night of the Living Dead. You make and mistakes I in life. Yeah, hey, we all do, yeah. right? And speaking of the makeup, real quick, I mean, we have a group chat, and 
so we're all looking up stuff about Joe Blasco. Really interesting guy. I found his website. It's Joe Blasco makeup or whatever. And I uh, send it in the group. And, and Emily, she knows how quick I spiral. She was like, she's like, oh, wait, but it's not a video podcast. What are you trying to say? Like, Don't do that to me. Like, she was like, I'm just uh. like, like, I've been, I picked out this color palette for you. <laughs> yeah, this mascara looks great, Emily. Maybe. Yeah, that that's so anyway, that made me spiral this week. That's spiraling with Drew. To, uh, MK, she did not want to come on the pod, guys. Sorry. I can't believe that. Yeah. Wow. Huh. Maybe next, she, has, next she has nothing else going on yeah <laughs> Don, donnie sorry i've interrupted you approximately no, no, three times good. in this effects uh section so it's funny it's, uh, it's as if i haven't interrupted you guys throughout the pod um <laughs> he almost turned this movie down he wasn't crazy about the script um watching the interview he's got on the uh special features of the vestron blu-ray which you guys can get it's uh, like under 10 bucks on amazon it's also free on tubi as emily knows he read the script and was like this this reads like a porno but then, much like Drew would have reacted the same way based on what he was telling us, he found out Barbara Steele was going to be in it. He had been obsessed with her also ever since he saw her. Very in Black relatable. Sunday. Yep. And he agreed right away under one condition, which nobody really cared about. He demanded that he got to do her makeup. To him, it was the world, literally, the makeup effects he did, the creature effects, everything he did was secondary. It was just a means to an end that he got to work with her and do her makeup. And, uh, you know, he shows up on set and he talks about this in his interview. He was like, you know, and, and it, it, it tracks with what Drew was saying about how Cronenberg read these dailies and was like depressed. You know, what's going on here? He goes up and he's like, this is fucking amateur hour. Right. You know, these guys don't know what they're doing. So according to him, he was pretty heavily involved um, in the beginning here with helping Cronenberg with direction. Now, he doesn't go as far to say he directed it. Right. This isn't we're not going to have the, the Spielberg Hooper conversation on this one. Yeah, we, we um, don't have time for that. Yep. But, uh, you know, he helped him set up shots. You know, the camera needs to be here. This is how to light it. Things like that. Um, a pretty cool thing that I didn't realize, uh, you know, he again came up with ideas. They're sitting there for this this bathtub scene and they're like, well, what the hell are we going to do? How do we get how do we get the parasite out of this drain? And he was like, guys, it's a close up of a drain. A drain is a drain. We can get under the sink. So the parasite coming out of the drain, he had a little like coat hanger thing on this parasite with a little bend at the end so we could tell where the head was facing. And they did it in the bathroom sink, which was pretty cool. And a little funny side thing on that, right? Continuity wise. That's a cool scene, right? And I didn't realize that the legs were doubles, but now it makes sense because they were totally different scenes because the legs are, the, the water is red with blood. It's saturated with blood. And then when it cuts to her face screaming, the water's crystal clear. <laughs> so, yeah. um, hey, it's it's on a budget. It's on a budget. In fact, I think you might have said this off uh, off mic, Donnie. Didn't Joe Blasco actually shoot that scene of the parasite outside, like at his house? It was a test uh, test scene. Yeah, it was a test scene. So the, the scene Drew's talking about, for those that plan on seeing it or seeing the film, it's outside. It's towards the beginning of the film, and. and it is a cool scene and, and I'll get into how he did this, but I mean, that, that thing is slugging along. It, it's, it's expanding, it's contracting, it's moving along, but you also see a fishing line coming out its ass. Um, and it's funny. You could see that in the theater on, on subsequent releases. You know, this yeah, is I admire Emily for, for being totally immersed. Yeah, she, she never saw it. the strings. She was totally in it. Yeah. She was I able to spend her disbelief. In the world of the movie. That's good. 
Yeah. I unfortunately was not. I saw it right away. And that's one of the things, man, these, these movies getting re-releases is awesome. I love, you know, they look better than they've ever looked. But, you know, you watch that movie on VHS, which I never did, but they talk about it. You know, you couldn't see it. Right. But now on these HD transfers, you can see it. And he saw it as soon as they filmed it. And he was like, we can't we got to redo it. And they were like, it doesn't matter, dude. It's it, it's it's not going in the movie. Right. We just wanted to shoot the effect and make sure it worked. It works. Great. Next thing he knows, it's in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> hey man, and, uh, save some money. Yeah, absolutely. He designed the parasites. What do you guys think? He, he says in his interview that it looks more like a penis than a turd to him, um, which he thinks is pretty on brand with what Cronenberg was going for with a lot of themes of this movie. So you guys think it's a dick or a poop? <laughs> the 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 dick or poop uh, portion of the episode. That's great, e- Emily. What do you think? I got I got to gather my thoughts on this one. I'm, not, I'm just going with cre- creepy slug. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, like you said, you were totally immersed in the movie. So yeah. that never even crossed your mind. Uh, I accepted it as a shiver. <laughs> I love that you are calling it a shiver. I, I have a, I, I'm still trying to, I'm filtering between parasite and slug. No, it's phallic for sure. <laughs> I, I think, I, I, like you said, it's kind of on brand for, for the movie in general. But Blasco, yeah, interesting guy. He, you know, kind of called it amateur hour on the set. But he is very complimentary of Cronenberg, so that even then he t- could tell he was a genius, right? Yeah. yeah. And he enjoyed working on it. And, and the last thing I have is just on that, that effect, which I think, I think the stomach is great, but I, I do think one of the better effects and, and most impressive to me was that they made the slug look like it was crawling, right? Mm-hmm. And they did it all practically. And what he did was he had a couple of wooden paddles with a, a, you know, a length of fishing line and they were attached at either end of the slug. And what he would do is they'd get the shot and he would, you know, take the leading end of, you know, you guys can't see this at home. I'm giving a nice visual representation <laughs> for the guys here. He'd pull it out, the leading end, it would stretch out. And then he'd let up the tension on the, on the tail end and it would stretch up and it looks like it's crawling forward. It's how they got it crawling across the floor. There's a, cool scene where it's going up an old woman's walker and slithering mm-hmm. you know spiraling mm-hmm. up it they did that shot the same way it, it is a good effect he did hey man he may have done it for the wrong reasons <laughs> right he, he may have only done it for barbara Steele, so we got to do her makeup but or the right reasons depending on how not, you look at it yeah <laughs> whether he cared about it or not um i think he did a competent job in it you know kudos to him i i think the effects are, are for the budget for the time for for cronenberg's experience for the crew I, I think the effects are not the weak point of this movie yeah now the weak point of this movie is the music it, it, well i say that the music or the lack thereof actually sort of enhances parts of the movie it's just like donnie said that like there wasn't some big bombastic score you're not going to hear you know the halloween score playing in the background it, it's very minimalistic. The, the main thing, though, is that, Emily, you brought this up to me, and I really wish you wouldn't have, is that Ed Sheeran has a song called Shivers. Uh, that, that's, the, that's, that's the main note that we received on Shivers. Uh, so this is my, my, my point of the, the program where I ask, how is that man famous? I don't, what is his award? I don't get, can anybody answer that for me real quick in like under 30 seconds, like I'm a fourth grader? He's my number one enemy. I can't answer that. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm sorry for any. Tell you how much you know, Google shivers, and then there's his face just looking at you. Yeah, I'm genuinely sorry. sorry to any Ed Sheeran fans out there. I just. Yeah. If he's listening, but I'm, I, I, yeah. I'm yeah. not sorry, Ed Sheeran fans, and I want it to be known. 
ricochet shots at Ed Sheeran fans. I, I, that's again, you get deep dives on the effects of movies and shade thrown at Ed Sheeran. We're all over I the would, place. I would say for the not Ed Sheeran Shivers music, I think the the lack of it did actually kind of work for me. Um, like in the scenes in the hallways, because you really you almost get that like airplane noise, just that white noise you get when mm. you're on an airplane. So airplane, so you you feel like you're in this totally sealed in self-contained community so it doesn't matter you're going up or down you're still stuck with these people that's a good point and i do i do like that kind of look at it and i mean also look it's a, it's a budget thing they yeah, couldn't afford plan. to have a score yeah they Cronenberg didn't have a traditional score in a movie until 1979's the brood i mean mm-hmm. ivan reitman is credited as the music supervisor on this movie so it it wasn't a priority and it, it really did do like Emily, you're talking about an excellent job of kind of building around that and mm-hmm. making scenes where that lack of music, that minimalist sort of background really pays off and makes it haunting. Like I yeah. keep going back to that scene of Annabelle at the beginning and right. her getting attacked, her getting cut up. Her, you're seeing some horrifying stuff that would typically be undercut by, you know, a, a little score here and there, but not here. It, it almost feels like documentary. Like, yes, yeah. this is what it would be like. Like, yeah. there is no screaming. I mean, there might, but you know, you're, she's fighting for her life. Yeah. You know, she is, she is reserving her energy for getting her breaths in and, and, and pushing back that, you know, there is not an orchestra behind her, you know, with zings and zangs. I mean, that, that can be effective too, but I, that was very different for me. I really, I really did enjoy that. Yeah, and it does set the tone and makes you really uncomfortable throughout. And even something like, I think about the pool scene at the end, which I I genuinely genuinely think, and we'll talk about it more later, but I genuinely think that's a great ending to this movie. Like, I I do think it's a nice Mm -hmm. capper, but in a different type of movie, and this is sort of the beauty of having restraints on your budget, is they couldn't afford all that music. And right there, that's somewhere where there would be some big, bombastic score being played with all these drums and uh, see gremlins for reference (laughs) yeah and so you do benefit from that and you get something that genuinely unnerves you throughout the entire runtime and kind of makes you cringe and there are a couple moments in the movie that makes you cringe imagine if in the pool scene it was just like in ground. It's just you, you joke, but like that, that's what someone would do. Yeah. Like if they had the budget, that, that's what they would do. Yeah. But you know, and right gets that credit for music supervisor simply because that you couldn't give it to anybody else. All he did, right, was he found the music samples that they used for when it is there. He was the one that gathered them and, you know, made them available, you know, made sure that they were able to use them. Yeah. And I mean, you get that, I think, really good scene of Lynn Lowry's character in the corner of the pool, kind of Blair witching it and mm-hmm. turning around. And again, it's not undercut by anything. And it does, I think, make it really effective. That wouldn't be my biggest what the hell moment that happens in the movie, but it, it could be perceived as one. What do you guys see as the biggest what, what in the hell am I watching here kind of moment? You know, we're like when you're watching it, if somebody walks in, they have no context for what you're watching <laughs> and you're like, oh, and you feel like you got to explain yourself. Um, 
one of them which is very specific to me would be when nurse Forsyth was making her salad she did not cut the top off that tomato so she just <laughs> left the little stemmy part with the leaves and she put it in the salad when when you said that I've got one y'all absolutely won't have I, I was racking my brain trying to think what could she possibly have gone with that we didn't think of no never I don't know if the 70s were just a different time someone who was alive then let me know how did you make your salads but that's what, that's stuff. was it worse than whichever gender it was that was cutting up the what was it a cucumber oh did yeah you, did oh, y'all see that yeah. That, that was a mess too. Which is more egregious though. Now though, if we make fun of her sister. So. I know. It, it look, it's a dream for me to, yeah. to finally get someone in the Kardashian clan on here. And, and look, I won't rest until we make that happen. But they can yeah. tell us how they cut their tomatoes. Also, when she was taking the bite of that asparagus, something moved on that asparagus. Did you guys notice that? No. You I'm notice this, but you missed the fishing line. <laughs> immersion I, total immersion i rewound twice i think maybe it was just her finger moved one of the fronds or something but i was like was was that a shiver i don't know so are go there back tiny shivers throughout yeah, the, the asparagus but something moved but i would say in, in terms of stuff you're actually supposed to be paying attention to probably my biggest wtf like makes me uncomfortable squirm scene was when our hero dr linsky eats it um you know first he he's like let me take a look at that belly which froze and then it's on his face mm. and then he, he gets it off like maybe he's gonna survive and then nicholas jerk comes out and it's like no you can't survive and so that but it was, it's just very visceral because it's you know he's got a smoking belly nicholas does Lindsay's face is just falling apart at this point he's crushing him to death in the sink like it was it, it was very it was good i think that smoking stuff almost killed joe silver yeah, yeah it got on his face right yeah yeah they were talking about how it got on him and i think cronenberg just said basically look we've been shooting long hours we were tired and that's what happens when you're tired and i was like uh yeah. it's a Should little more serious yeah. than that <laughs> you know he just kind of like said it flippantly and i was like oh i don't know i think i'd be a little upset if i was uh, mr silver but donnie what was your biggest I, I know you said i mean look you've seen a ton of movies you've seen a lot of stuff that makes you squirm makes you go oh but what in this movie was effective to you and made you feel a little uncomfortable? So my biggest what the fuck moment had nothing to do with the gore effects or the shivers. So, well, I guess you could argue it did. He was under the effect of his shivers. And this is also why Roger beat out Linsky for me as my favorite character. And I just, I died watching the scene. It was more of a what the fuck funny thing for me, but I loved it. So it's, and I mentioned those two guys were enjoying themselves, right? So mm -hmm. we got Roger and this, this whole, this whole sequence, I think is really cool when he is running through the building, he goes down the stairs and the, you know, the, the fire escape stairs. I guess they're not fire escape stairs, but the stairwell and he hears the voices down. He just turns around, goes up again. Great use of like, there isn't this pulsing soundtrack or, or, mm -hmm. you know, cues of, ring. you know, it's just mm -hmm. him like thinking he's like, can't go that way. Gotta go up. And, and then he's, you know, going into these different apartments and like not here. So he goes to the elevator, right? Our two speedo uh, buddies come out and they're having a ball. And they're excited to see him. And, and when he goes in, right, he hides in this apartment. He's looking at him through the peephole. They hear some other sounds. They move on and he turns around, right? This is the scene I'm talking about. 
He turns around and we got fucking Gandalf the Grey over here, right? <laughs> this old dude with this long beard with a no name. I don't know who she is. Total Stone Cold Fox, though, right? And it's his daughter. Sure. All right, Erica. And he gets up. He stands up, looks at him, and he asks him, have you met my daughter, Erica? He proceeds to pull her next to him. And this old dude starts making out with her, right? And what does Roger do? He just looks at him. He backs up a little. And this is what I love. He just kind of nods to him. He's like, mm-hmm. and then he books it the fuck out of there. Right. But yeah. the nod, oh, I, and I don't know if it's yeah. the direction of the character, but that fucking nod, he's like, yep, carry on. Nothing to see here. I'll leave that to you guys. And he's I just absolutely like, think out of there. that was a Paul Hampton choice. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. The brilliance of Paul Hampton on display for all to see. Yeah. And I know it's it. not like your traditional thing you think of. Like, that's your what? I don't know. I just, I did not expect his reaction to be, and it's the nod. It's the nod that does it for me. He's just like, yeah. and then he's out. No, I, it's my favorite scene in the movie. <laughs> I, I agree. I mean, I, I have that written down. I have, I have several in here because I cheat, but that that is really uncomfortable. And I, I think that is some of the tightest direction in this movie and kind of where you see Cronenberg finally getting to really show what he's capable of and show some images that are really uncomfortable and, and to kind of insert that into the movie and just make you go, uh-huh. Yeah. So that, and then sort of in that same segment, you get the kids on a leash mm-hmm. and it's, it's Wait. brief. It's a brief little scene but you've got somebody that have these kids on leashes and they're walking around on all fours. It's brief, but kind of like the scene you talked about, Donnie, it just makes your skin crawl and it's depraved. And I, I feel like that's where Cronenberg was really kind of coming into himself and figuring out these uncomfortable images that he wanted to put on screen. Did y'all have any other, did y'all have any other honorable mentions for uh, biggest what the hell moment? Um, I think the the bathtub scene with Bat was just a really good straight up bit of horror. Yeah, sure. yeah. Nancy from Nightmare on Elm Street, step aside. Got a, another bathtub scene. I, I'll I'll go through a couple of my honorable mentions. So, like you said, the talking to the lumps in his stomach, Nick talking to him like yeah. they're dogs. So that was that, yeah, that's a big WTF for me because I I don't get it. Yeah, nobody else is reacting like that. I don't get Cronenberg's thought process behind putting it in. It just it just doesn't click. No, it, it was a strange, a strange scene to me. It, again, it didn't make really any sense within the context of the movie at that point. And even afterwards, you look back at it and you're yeah. like, nobody else does this. What the fuck? Yeah. Why, why is Nick doing this? Because I can tell you one thing. He ain't special. That's and insane. made me shiver. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, there it is. I was, I was wondering, you know, when that would come in. Uh, the, the shiver coming out of Nick's mouth. We talked about that. Uh, the, the last one that I had was the man and the little girl eating pie out of their hands Ugh. over the mom in the elevator. Yeah. 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 Oh, and even the guy, the, uh, I guess he's like a, a waiter server when he's showing them the pie in his hand, yeah. he's holding it out with like the, the mutton chops and facial hair, put... right? Yeah. That guy's facial hair was what the fuck. I'm glad you put that it was pie in the notes. I had I had no clue. Like, are we, I, are we eating organs now? I thought I'd missed something. I'm, I'm <laughs> guessing 
it was, I think you're uh, right. it was from that. It was right. I don't think it was an anthropoc- anthropophagus uh, type situation. Yeah. If you've seen that movie, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Was it, was it a shiver and he makes the girl eat it? So I was a little, little confused there. You know, but, that he was eating his own intestines, you mean, Drew? Yes. <laughs> yes. That and a fetus. Yep. Anthropophagus. Give it a, give it a watch if you're a sadist. So I'm glad you pronounced it right. I've always never been able to. Pr- I've seen the film. I own the film. And I was like, Anthropophomorgaganus. <laughs> it took me like four tries. You, you heard me. I, I stumbled over it the first couple of times. I, I'm pretty sure it's called the Grim Reaper as well, which yeah. rolls off the tongue a little bit better than Anthropophagus. You guys um, can learn more about that by checking out Donnie's Horror Corner, where I do an extensive post coverage on it. And that's also where any complaints should be issued to. Yes. To yep. Donnie's Horror Corner on Instagram. All nice stuff goes to at Psychotronic on Instagram. All your nice stuff you want to say. But we've talked about sort of the what the hell moments. And I think some of those are born out of having a smaller budget, right? So some of those constraints bred some really great moments. But what would we do? if we had more of a budget, what do you think Cronenberg would have done if he had more of a budget? So Emily, if you had all the money in the world to make shivers, you want to remake it and you want to uh, go back in time and a time machine, we have that readily available, go back and make it with a huge budget. What would you do? I don't, I don't know that I would change much because I do think it worked in his favor. And again, it's not a world-class best movie ever, but I think the, the, lower budget definitely worked in favor honestly for the effects because I didn't see any strings for just the general vibe I would definitely recast Nicholas so he he's out I put a little more money in the casting there I think they probably saved a lot of money in wardrobe on bras because they didn't buy any so I thought (laughs) that with the expanded budget for me I would probably and I think what doesn't totally work for this movie and I'll just say my end stuff now is it feels like it could be tighter and I don't mean like there's scenes out there that I think should be necessarily cut, but I, to me, what I would like to see is an escalating scene. Like there's just, there's a lot of some loosey goosey time there in the middle where it really should be escalation. Like you get off in floor four and this apartment door's open and something's happening there. So shoot, we got to go down to floor two, but something's in the stairwell there. So it's just feels like it's spreading more quickly and more escalating so that when he comes to the end, he really can't get out. And we've, we've seen that happening. Hmm. I like it. Yeah. I like that too. That's, those are all really good points. And yeah, I haven't even really thought about the the pacing issues mm-hmm. sort of, but that's a, that's a good point to bring up. And yeah, I think. I don't think the runtime is bad. I don't think it's yeah. too long. I just think there's some, some time in there that could be used more effectively. Definitely. Donnie, what do you think? What would you, if you had a big budget, what would you do? Well, I could have all the money in the world and I'd pro- I, I can guarantee you I'd make a, a, a worse film. So, you know, thinking of this, you know, we already talked about how effective it is, the lack of, of the score. So I, I, I wouldn't put it any in there. Definitely with Emily on, I would put more money into my casting department and we would get rid of this guy that plays Nicholas, right? <laughs> get somebody- He's not listening that can act. I don't care if he's listening. Alan Coleman, I am sorry. Please accept my connection on LinkedIn. (laughs) You could have done better, Alan. (laughs) So I'd recast him. You know, the effects for, I love to see gore. I love gore effects. I love creature features. I I adore them. You know, I, I would want it to be practical. So on one hand, I'd say, let's pour more money into that. I don't think that they're bad. I think they could have been better with more money. 
And that would have been cool. They were also pioneering some of these ideas, not pioneering necessarily, but right. It was early. This is 1975. So I'm not saying, you know, well, well, let's get a, let's get somebody else in there for it necessarily. What I would have liked to have seen. And again, it's tough. Uh, You know, I'm kind of going back on what I've got written and I struggle with it. You know, on one hand, I'd like to see more on, you know, more than just the manifesto on it. Like, let's see the beginning of the, the creation of the parasites, right? Where, you know, a little bit more on that, where it all came from. Um, but I kind of like the manifesto idea that gives us that exposition on it. It would have been cool to kind of, I guess, have a final shot of showing it getting out of there, right? Maybe, maybe a final mm-hmm. montage of it's not just the, you know, the pool. And you get the, as the credits roll, you get those, um, the radio, yeah, the so news, the invasion the of the news, body snatchers type yeah, ending on the radio. It'd be cool to have a couple of scenes of showing, you know, some a family at a cookout. They're at a barbecue, and and somebody falls out into the pool with with you know shivers coming out of them. I, I was going to ask you know, all this a couple uh, like since that. you're. I'll interrupt you just because I, I was going to bring this up. Higher budget, and then okay, say they said, "Oh my gosh, Emily, Donnie, y'all made a great movie. We love it." We gotta have a sequel. Everybody's gotta have a sequel. What would you do with a sequel, Emily? Would would you make one? Shivers in space. I would not make one because I enjoy the unknown and ambiguity. Mm. I don't think we always need to continue the story. Oh, do you have any comments on sort of the climate of uh, movies today? Then, do you just want to share that real quick about um, I don't know the movie going experience right now? Anything like? I, I, I'm, okay, I'm kidding. We don't need more one. Star, we don't. We don't need more one star reviews, please. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but Donnie, what would you do? Is that what you would do with a sequel? Is you basically take it to like the suburbs, sort of make it wider, or would you send them to space with Leprechaun and Jason? I don't. You know, I'm with Emily. This this film does not need a sequel. Um, I don't think Shivers in Space would work. It's a cool idea, right? We did it with Leprechaun. We did it with Jason. We've done it with others. But Shivers in Space is going to be the exact same thing. It's a self-contained, you know, it's a smaller environment, but we have that mm-hmm. with the Starline, right? It, it's it's all in this one spot. Now, Space would demand that, right? I don't want to see Shivers doing a Leia Force Ghost, you know, Force Powers thing out in the vacuum of space, you know, willing themselves to move around back to the ship or anything. If I had to do one, it, it probably would be, you know, okay, we've seen it. We've seen it enclosed. We've seen it in this apartment building. Like you said, let's see what happens when it, when it hits the streets, you know, a, a more open, you know, thing that, that goes on a, you know, what's happening in the country and the world as a result of this, you know, as it spreads. So you brought this up. I, I don't know where else to put this. So I'll mention it here. You say shivers in space. So there's a little movie, and I don't know if y'all have ever heard of it before, tiny little indie movie, didn't make many waves, uh, Alien. <laughs> yeah. I've heard uh, of Aliens. <laughs> Alien came out in 1979, moderate success there. And there was a film festival, oh, for the life of me, I can't remember what it's called, in Germany, it was years later, and Cronenberg showed Shivers. And there was somebody in the crowd that was pretty irate that got up and was like, how dare you? I mean, you're ripping off Alien. You're doing all these things that Alien did so much better. Who are you to take this? And so Cronenberg was basically, sir, sir, sir. My movie <laughs> came out four years before Alien. <laughs> you know, so this guy, this guy went and got all over Cronenberg about ripping off Alien. And he, he genuinely believes, it seems, because he brings it up in a couple of different interviews that, uh, oh gosh, listeners are going to get all over me if I get this wrong. Is it Ed O'Bannon? 
that wrote Alien, or he was one of the writers on it. Dan O'Bannon? I don't know. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, I got the name mixed up. But anyway, he said that he had seen Shivers. He had admitted to as much. And so Cronenberg believes that they did, you know, take a crib a few things from Shivers. And you can kind of see it if you squint and you try real hard. Maybe you've had a drink or five. But, mm-hmm. you know, there are some similarities there. But that that could be Shivers in space. But if, for my part, you know, changing anything with the budget, I don't think you should or ever could with this movie and it be as effective as it is. The one thing that Cronenberg said before is that he would maybe have wanted to use CGI on the uh, shivers themselves. And even he goes on to say, like, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't change it. It is what it is. It was part of its time. And then he, he kind of threw some shade at George Lucas and was like, I would never go back and change it like Lucas did with Star Wars. Yeah. I was like, damn. I'm totally wrong. <laughs> yeah, he's not, he's not wrong. And now we've got Star Wars fans on us. But so... It, that would have been like the one thing that I'd maybe change because I'm like Emily. I, I was, I saw the strings on the on the <laughs> shiver, and I was like, you know, it'd be nice if it maybe moved a little more fluidly. But like I said, kind of at the beginning, this movie works best as sort of a time capsule, and that's Agreed. what they had at their disposal at the time. And Joe Blasco did, I think, a, a great job with what he had. So wouldn't want to change anything there. So we've kind of covered you know uh, everything but from the background to the director to the cast to you know some of the budgetary restraints what we would do to change them some of the crazy moments in the movie that we loved or that made us squirm like the trailer wanted us to but now we want to go into sort of our overall opinions on the movie and so we're each going to have sort of our different way of doing this emily your first heart or no heart for shivers. Okay, well, I had to think about this a little bit. I'm truly incapable of rating stuff, so that is why we're doing heart or no heart. I I would say heart. Um, it's not, you know, hey, it's in my top three Cronenberg, so it actually can't be that shabby. But I I enjoyed. I watched it twice. I enjoyed both watches. I had fun thinking about it and looking up stuff about it. I I think it really does have some effective moments, and none of it is like outright offensively bad, except for Nicholas for you. (laughs) um, Other than that, so I yeah I think hard on this, and I did. I know we've we've gone really long. I did want to break it break the bad news to you guys that in 2013 there was talk about a shivers remake Mm. Uh, september of 2013 there was just a flurry of vague information but it had a director and producers and a writer attached it was supposed to start in yes it was supposed to start filming in february 2014 after and i i went on the dark web i'll tell you what (laughs) there is there is nothing it um the director was gonna be a danish filmmaker re Rasmussen, which you two as card carrying members of the patriarchy are assuming is a guy, but it's a girl. So take that. Mm, I but, do need uh, to check my, I need to check my privilege. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. She um had a few acting credits, was in Femme Fatale with Rebecca Romaine, had four director credits, which was one movie and three shorts, but one of her shorts was picked in 2004 for the Quentin Tarantino Film Fest. Wow. Uh, for Cannes Film oh. Fest. So I would assume that's kind of how she really had any, I don't want to say relevance. I'm not sure what I want to say, how really anybody knew her to begin with. Um, She has done nothing since 2009, except for a music video appearance in 2013. 
um, the writer in film. She's probably been doing something. Well, yeah. <laughs> as, as far as as far as writing, directing, acting, any of that, she she just kind of dropped off the face of the earth. I actually think the Shivers remake might have been a bit of a curse because the writer attached was Ian Driscoll, who had eight credits from 2001 to 2009. I've never heard of any of them. One of them is Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter. Have you guys heard of that? No, <laughs> no, I, uh, I can't say that I have the honor. And this year he has a movie in post-production, but from 2009 to 2022, he has absolutely nothing wow. going on besides, you know, his personal life, but besides that. And then, yeah, there was a couple producers, Jeff Sackman, who did American Psycho and Buffalo 66, but really, again, nothing, nothing since around that time. Huh. Buffalo 66 is great. Yeah, I was about yeah. to say, those are two, like, good movies. Yeah, but all of the people attached to it, honestly, there's nothing nothing on them after that time period and there's just nothing on the remake so i'm not really sure what happened there and i think very glad it didn't get a remake yeah i think it's really not not necessary how dare you that movie would have put these people on the map they'd be feeding their families right now if they could have (laughs) raised royalties yeah yeah no uh this movie has no need to be remade which most don't let's be frank there's another one star review but so for my part i'm basically asking look does this movie deserve a reappraisal or a wider audience and when i say reappraisal i feel like i should sort of explain what i mean is so in recent years halloween three freddy's revenge movies that have sort of garnered a new respect right emily's smiling at freddy's revenge We're, we're both big fans of that movie some of us knew it from the beginning exactly right oh, yeah sure. exactly although to and be that, fair i watched it for the first time this year but i immediately knew not to go on a tangent but that's one of those where i watched it for the first time and i was like people don't like this yeah i was shocked i was like i got i finished it and was like whoa i can't wait to listen to the world talk about how yeah. great this is. Ha- halloween three i kind of get because many people had expectations like my mother still gets mad talking about Halloween three, whenever I bring it up and I'm like, no, it's actually good. She's like, well, I don't like you. But (laughs) so as far as reappraisal for this movie goes, look, I think it's fine where it is. It's a time capsule. Donnie, I think you said this. If you're a Cronenberg completionist, you really love what he does. Give it a, give it a watch. It's not without its merit. Emily, you said, I mean, it's a competently made movie. Mm -hmm. It, you don't look at it and go, Oh, it's good it's just i don't think we necessarily need to be going around saying oh my god shivers is the best thing to ever happen it's great we need to screen it in every indie theater you know it's good theater yes but so (laughs) i think it's it's perfect where it is and as far as a wider audience goes i mean i kind of said it if you are someone who loves Cronenberg, loves this type of movie, give it a watch. And I mean, I even put a couple of movies where, you know, I, I, Psychotronica recommends. So if you enjoyed this, give a watch to Donnie. You mentioned this in Slugs, uh, mm-hmm. Night of the Creeps. Night um, of the Creeps, great. A- Alien, even. I mean, I think everybody's probably watched Alien that's listening to this. But the other one is in James Gunn. He, he's one of my favorite directors. I love James Gunn. He directed a movie called Slither and it has a lot of similarities. And he has even said that it is definitely an inspiration for that movie. So 
give that a watch because also if you're someone who loves you know the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, Suicide Squad, stuff like that, you're like James Gunn, go back, watch that movie, see the influence that Shivers has had uh, over time. But uh, even Cronenberg himself said that you have to admit, this is a very strange movie in the director's commentary. And that's exactly what it is. But now the moment you've all been waiting for, I've been waiting for it. We all want to hear it. Mm-hmm. Donnie's definitive rating. Donnie, what do you got for us? You give me too much credit. So to harp <laughs> on what you said there, guys, yeah, Slither, Slither's great. You want to see what, what the effects could have looked like with a big, bigger budget. They, you know, Slither does a great thing of using a lot of practical effects with some CGI. Nathan Fillion is in it. It's great. That I love that movie. Mm-hmm. And, and it's absolutely indebted to Shivers. You know, yeah. look at the bathtub scene. Come on. So, you know, the, this hard or no heart, right, that, that Drew asked Emily to do, this is, this is a joke. You know, we have our inside joke on, on her letterboxed reviewing right because she won't give anything a review like a star she can't rate it well, so it, night of the living dead i did star oh there you go what'd you give it oh five stars okay perfect yeah. all right nice nice i'll give stars i'll write reviews i wrote a very short one on shivers for anybody that cares right you can check me out on letterbox to donnie underscore mch so i've got it pulled up here my review on shivers uh we talked about i, I believe when you were given uh some of the metrics on it you said uh, Letterbox gave it overall 3.2. I said better than I did. Well, there aren't 3.2 that I can give. You can give, you know, stars and a half. I gave it three stars. I said, hey, man, everyone's got to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that's my feelings on it. Do I think it deserves reappraisal? Uh, reappraisal? Reappraisal? Yeah, by Barry Norman. You know, <laughs> uh, I think he needs to reappraise it. I think Robert Fulford, writing under the name Marshall Delaney, could reappraise it, right? Um, those guys crucified it and unjustly so to psychotronic and horror fans. If you've seen it, you know, rewatch it because we did an episode on it. You want to listen to the episode if you want. That's great. If you're a Cronenberg completionist, I think this is great to see where he started. If you're somebody that's listening to this podcast, not because you're a personal friend or relatives of us that was pressured to listen to it because we started it and you're actually somebody that found us organically that is listening because you're interested in this stuff, then I think it's worth checking out. Absolutely. And I can promise you, you've seen much worse films. I know I have. I know I own much worse films. I know I've seen much worse films again for a second time. So it's still three stars. Three out of five for me. That means it's good. It's not great. It's not excellent, but it's decent. I'm glad I watched it. I'm happy to have it on my shelf. That's and you want to talk about a, a soapbox, and I'll get on one real quick. And this is something that just bothers the hell out of me, is everything now has to either be the greatest thing you've ever seen or it sucks. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, hey, you know what's good? A good movie. Mm-hmm. A fun movie. And there's nothing wrong with that. Things can be good and they don't have to be the greatest thing you've ever seen in in your life and you don't have to fight for it anyway again that's a soapbox that i could get on it's a good movie and that's great to me you know there there are much worse ways out there to spend 90 minutes than watching shivers directed by david cronenberg right and when you're done watching it go out to your library and get High Rise by J.G. Ballard from 1975, yeah. which explores similar themes that Drew made me read. I did, and yeah, feel guilty about that because um, it seems like the no, similarities I, I are. Actually, I enjoyed the book. It's, you know, it's 270 pages, which uh, means she read it in less than half an hour. 
not not accurate it's impressive no i did but i do i think it was interesting reading it along with watching the movie because i just think it came out in 75 like that time there was just such an interest in where the communities he was going where technology was taking us um in you know in high a high-rise apartment building that's self-contained and has everything you need so the 10th floor is your pool and your liquor store and your grocery store and right. you have the bank there and the massage people and hair salon and all that stuff so these these people move in um i guess it would depend on how you feel about shivers too either to their detriment or to the better they revert to a what i think the author is saying the characters feel is more a pure sense of being in the case of shivers it's about it's all about sex in the case of high rise it really is about human basic nature to need power and conflict indicated our resident historian emily winter is is that she went and read a novel that has a tangential at best connection to this movie but hey so you're gonna it, get here. It's, it's a lot of the same themes so it really ended up being interesting thinking about them in conjunction it was featured and, in a review funny that enough, I read. there is actually the hint of incest in high rise too so people in the 70s were really thinking about some stuff relevant relevant yeah. hey i mean I'll shame that a little bit, actually. No, that's yeah, put, wrong. Put that one in the no column. Hey, yeah. Kink shaming is my kink. <laughs> so okay. Well, it's like Inception. I, I mean, now I don't know <laughs> how to respond other than saying in Weldon's words what he thought of the movie. So Michael J. Weldon, he's sort of the godfather of psychotronic cinema. He's the one that coined the term. He's uh, got a book. They came out, and I believe it's 1983, called the Psychotronic uh, Encyclopedia of Film. And so under They Came From Within, he said, the first of Cronenberg's unique commercial features has horrible, scientifically created aphrodisiac parasites that live in stomachs of tenants at a sterile apartment complex on an island near Montreal. Paul Hampton, Joe Silver, and Lynn Lowry star. Barbara Steele receives a parasite while taking a bath. A bloody, queasy, and very personal horror film. Cronenberg's next was Rabid. So that is in Weldon's words. And yeah, pretty much sums it up there. And well, guys, I, I had a lot of fun uh, watching this movie, talking about it with you guys. It's one that I'd seen before. Uh, glad that you guys got to watch it, get a little bit more context on Cronenberg and get this podcast up and running. It, it's something that uh, I know I'm proud of. I know you guys are proud of. And this is just the first of many. And I mean, just want to thank everybody for joining us. I mean, Donnie, you, you pointed out, I think, uh, I think a lot of our first listens were maybe people that we just guilted into uh, <laughs> listening, or maybe they just were blood related to us and, and wanted to give it a try. But all of you that have come to us and you watch Shivers and you wanted to hear a little bit more about it and get an idea of where David Cronenberg got its start. Thank you so much. And, you know, like I said in the intro episode, look, we're going to be doing this every month. And so next month, this is a pick by Donnie. So Donnie, do you want to reveal what the next movie is going to be? Yeah, sure. 
So before any of you guys get on, get on your soapbox there at home on what, what are they going to cover? The true, true psychotronic stuff. Well, guess what? <laughs> right now, we got to get the fan base. And right now, we, we're, we're operating on the idea that you're probably going to be tuning in because you know about the movie uh, necessarily than you know about the host. So uh, <clears throat> yeah, we're not showing we'll the astrologer about, yet. Yeah, you know? right. This movie's got a little bit of a bigger budget than you'd consider psychotronic, but we're going to be talking next month about a movie that is near and dear to my heart. It is a movie called Crawl from 1983 about a prince and a fellowship of companions set out to rescue his bride from a fortress of alien invaders who have arrived on their home planet. Think sword and sorcery meets Star Wars. I love this movie. I cannot wait to learn more about it, research about it, watch it again, and talk about it with you guys. End of that episode next month, we'll find out what Emily's pick is for September. So, and she keeps everything really mysterious. So we have no idea what it is yet. Me neither. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. And then before we go, uh, Emily is not going to share her social media because she's our resident mystery woman and we like it that way. And, Mm -hmm. but Donnie, Donnie, you have a horror-centric Instagram that, as I pointed out many times, is where everyone with any complaints should go. Uh, Donnie, what's your Instagram? Where can people find you? You guys can find me on Instagram, Donnie underscore does underscore horror. Donnie is D-O-N-N-I-E because D-O-N-N-Y is baby shit. And you guys can also find me on Letterboxd where I review, you know, everything that I've seen. I always write a quick review on it for the most part. Donnie underscore MCH. Perfect. Perfect. And you can follow the pod at Psychotronica pod on Instagram. And you can also find us on Twitter at Psychotronica with two underscores. Uh, and let me clarify, I didn't get to do yes. this in the last episode. <laughs> Please, if you listen to the intro episode, there was a moment where I seemed even dumber than I am, where Donnie asked me, was Psychotronica pod taken? Uh, Definitely thought about it beforehand, but I tried it again and it was too long. So I I did make a mistake, but it wouldn't have mattered anyway, because it was too long. It's a happy accident, like Bob Ross would say. Exactly. Happy accident. But you can find us at Psychotronica with two underscores on Twitter. And you can find me on Instagram at R2D Drew with an underscore there. And you can also find me on uh, Letterbox as well, DS White 36. Uh, just watched Elvis last night. I have no idea what I think about it. Well, we can, we can talk about that on there. So reach out. Brian walked out on it. Is your Instagram about Star Wars? <laughs> So, so the Instagram is only photos of that, Star Wars. So it's just Star Wars. <laughs> no, I mean, centric. the name of it just yeah, yeah. just for me. So, so yeah, R two D drew. In case you were wondering what type of human being I am, I said it out loud. But it never occurred to me that that's what that was. It yeah, didn't for me yeah. for a while either. And I picked it up one day randomly and texted him. Or it, I like DM'd him. Was like, is this R two D? It's real cute and irreverent, you know. Hey, I like did you guys it. know that um, Ivan Reitman and Harold Ramis are different people? Yeah, right. Since when? <laughs> Learn a lot today. <laughs> Join us next so, month. So it's Toby <laughs> Maguire and Jake Gyllenhaal, believe it or not. Everybody knows that. Toby's That's not true. <laughs> Don't tell lies. We're, we're supposed to be informing people on this podcast, <laughs> and you're just spreading all these lies. And you can hear more lies straight from our mouths next month as we cover Crawl. Not Crawl. Crawl.